All right, true confession time. How many people actually keep their eyes open while I'm trying to get my podium in the right place? Anybody sneak a peek at me? Yeah, all right, you can see me fidgeting around trying to get things exactly perfectly, right? I'm thinking this morning, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so neurotic. Like, I'm looking at how many steps I've got to the back step. I don't want to back up and fall over. It's so much to think about um, as people are praying, so... Um, I want to thank uh, those of you that have been praying for me uh, this week and just kind of during this series, and, and thank you too for um, several people just sent me some really encouraging texts this, this past week, and man, you have no idea um, just how great it is to get those from time to time, so thank you for that. Um, these messages have been kind of doozies to write, so um, I appreciate that a lot. Um, we've talked about this before, but there is a particular way in which Jesus went about being the Savior of the world. Right When this movement, Christianity, started, the actual first name for it was The Way. That's what they called people who followed Jesus. They were a part of The Way of Jesus. So that phrase is super important, and it communicates a lot. It was a way that created space for conversation, a sincere desire to, to know and be known by those who were genuinely seeking truth And for some who didn't even know that they were looking for something or someone, but found Jesus anyway. And I'm calling this way winsome, which means attractive and engaging. Um, And to learn this way, most of us have to go through a process of kind of undoing some faulty thought patterns. Whether we've grown up outside of the church and primarily influenced by kind of the world's perspective or even if we've kind of grown up in various church settings um, over the course of our life, we can all probably all see that there's some stinking thinking out there about you know, views on God and ourselves and others, and then how we communicate the heart of God to a hurting world. And I do want to throw out some caution before we go much further this morning. I was, uh, as I was preparing this week, I actually stumbled across several articles, um, primarily written by Christians, who really were kind of dragging this whole um, idea of winsomeness through the mud. So I was like, oh, okay, let me check these out. I do, I do think, after reading a couple of them, it's like, okay, I can see some concerns there. So I want to just point out what, it, what I feel like the biggest one was, and that was this idea of overcorrection. So the first time I really heard the phrase overcorrection was in driver's ed. And uh, when I was, you know, in school a long time ago, you actually had it as a class during the school day. And so the basketball coach was the driver's ed teacher, and my driving partner was one of my best friends like from grade school. Um, his name was Danny, and he had never been behind the wheel of a car before. So when it was his turn to drive and I was in the back seat, it was like white knuckle, you know, like, God, Lord, please save us, right? And when the teacher got brave enough to actually take Danny out of the school parking lot and onto a real road, like the first time we were driving, it was like, you know, two-lane road um, with just ditches on either side. And um, I just remember him turning left onto this road, and then he starts to overcorrect, and the, the, the teacher's just freaking out. I mean, I'm in the backseat just dying laughing because we're going like 10 miles an hour. So even if we go in a ditch, nothing's going to go wrong. But So that was like overcorrection. I was like, okay, yeah, I get that. But as I want you to, to picture as we're kind of driving down this spiritual highway of life, so if you think about a big you know, just even just a two-lane country highway, just a straight road. And I want you to picture the words grace and truth 
written on that road. And then over here in one ditch on one side of the road would just be the word truth. And over on this side in this ditch would just be the word grace. And we've talked about, I've done sermon series before about how all of us are born with kind of propensity to just kind of lean one way or the other. We're naturally more of a grace-filled people or we're naturally more kind of truth tellers. And the problem is, is that neither ditch are places that we want to end up in because they don't adequately, adequately describe the full nature of who Christ is who came into the world, as John 1.14 reminds us. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And some people, maybe just because of, you know, some life experience, they, they steer so far away from the, the path of, of judgmentalism and legalism that they overcorrect into kind of this accommodating faith of kind of everything goes, Christianity, right? And that's really not a healthy place, and it's equally as destructive. So we have to live in this tension in the middle. And as I was thinking about this analogy even this morning, it's like you're trying to drive down this road, but man, it's almost like there's this magnetic pull on either side, right? Of just to be just grace or grit, just truth. It's just kind of like we have to almost just kind of like hold that steering wheel pretty tightly because it's so easy to start bending in one way or the other. And one of the big questions that we asked during that series on grace and truth a couple of years ago is if you tend to be more of a, a truth teller, what is it you're fearing about extending grace to people? And if you're more of a, a grace first person, what is it that you fear about sharing the truth with someone that keeps you kind of stuck or paralyzed from ever broaching anything controversial with folks? And I would really encourage you to bring those things before God because right, our, our goal as followers of Christ is to, is to emulate him. So if he's full of grace and truth, we've got to figure out how do we get there? And we've got to come to him. We can't stay the way we are. But we have to live in this tension in the middle, full of grace and truth. And I would argue that this middle way is the only winsome way. Anyway, let me ask you this question. What friendships do you appreciate the most? What friendships do you appreciate the most? Is it the person who's constantly telling you what you should be doing and kind of critiquing your every move, even if they're right sometimes, it can just get pretty exhausting, right? Because we all know that we're not perfect. <laughs> so having somebody kind of constantly remind us of that fact can get pretty discouraging after a while. Or maybe you have a friend in your life who just tells you that you're great all the time. And that might feel good for a season, especially if you've maybe got some other truth teller friends that kind of wear you out and beat you up a little bit. But even after a while, it's like, you know, you can only eat so much cotton candy, right? Before it starts to just be like, ah, it wasn't exciting as, as the first time they were piling on, right? That could, even that can get kind of annoying because it's just flattering. I would hope that we all, what we all want is somebody, a friend who has this combination of the two, 
right? They're loving and encouraging and gracious when they need to be, but they also love us enough to speak some truth into our life when we need to hear it, when we're not operating in a way that reflects Christ very well. I'd rather be, you know, kind of, I want to say called out, but just guided towards the truth by somebody that I know cares about me and that does that in a loving way so that I can become a better person. And that's Jesus. That's what makes him attractive. It's his ability to perfectly balance those two things. So today's Jesus interaction is a brilliant picture of his ability to balance grace and truth in a winsome way. And Jesus will leave no doubt in this conversation about what's required um, to leave behind the old way of thinking about God that we kind of started with to embrace this new covenant that he's trying to, to usher in, this new way. Today we're going to look at this famous interaction that he has with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Pharisees tend to get a bad rap in the Gospels, um, and they tend to be kind of associated with all that's wrong about religion, um, but not all of them were evil. And scripture tells us as you read through the Gospels that many Pharisees turned to Christ as well. Um, so I want to just give us a little bit of background on this religious sect, because you hear a lot about Pharisees in Scripture, and you might not know much about how they came to be. So the Pharisaical movement started about 165 years uh, BC. So it's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This group kind of began getting together. And the term Pharisee literally means separate ones, which helps us to understand their, their mindset of kind of trying to distinguish themselves from society. Okay. In Matthew 23, 5 through 7, Jesus describes some of their mannerisms like this. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. So it's not a very flattering description. But when their movement began, there was um, some group of, of men that kind of looked back over Israel's history and what they saw was this pattern uh, of disobedience and where the nation of Israel, their hearts would go astray and they would start worshiping other gods and idols. Um, and then God would send uh, an enemy, the Assyrians, the Babylonians to come and to overthrow them and take a lot of the Israelites off to foreign lands as exiles. And it was just kind of this pattern again and again of waywardness. And so the, the Pharisees kind of began because there was a group of people that said, we've got to get back to being obedient to God's word. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets, the oral tradition. We've got to start living those things out, hoping that maybe then God will show some favor on us. So good intentions, but it quickly became a source of pride to become one of those kind of elite scholars, to kind of achieve the status of being a part of this group called the Pharisees. It's like only the best and brightest young boys were chosen for that path. And in their pursuit of holiness, they became further removed from what they would have seen as kind of unclean and uneducated masses of people, afraid of being around folks because they might get contaminated by their disobedience and ignorance. So they carried a, a great amount of like social and religious clout in their society. 
they would have been considered very conservative, very much a group of people that saw things as very black and white. Okay? So I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3 this morning. It's page 1512. Page 1512, John 3. So this is early on in Jesus' ministry, just a little bit after the, the first miracle of turning the water to wine has been done, and, um, but long enough that Jesus is starting to get a little bit of a reputation. He's starting to get kind of known by people, and people are having opinions about who he is. And I actually want to back it up into chapter 2 just a little bit. So chapter 2, starting in verse 23, it says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. And believed his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So, two important details um, to kind of understand from that little passage. First of all, the Jews had several uh, festivals throughout the years that were big holidays, and so all of the Jews in the Mediterranean area would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for like a week-long festival, and, and so the streets would literally be swelling with like hundreds of thousands of people that have come. So Jesus being here even kind of early on in the game, performing miracles and stuff, he's got a massive audience that's kind of noticing this. There's a lot of buzz, okay, so a lot of people are seeing what he's doing here. Secondly, we see that Jesus is very leery about the praise of mankind. He says that he, he can see and he knows the hearts of everyone. And this is important to keep in mind too as Nicodemus, this Pharisee, arrives on the scene one night. Jesus already knows why he's there. He already knows what his intentions are for this conversation. So let's look at verse 1. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we find out quickly that the Nicodemus isn't just the Pharisee, but he's also a part of this ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Okay, the Sanhedrin was a court of judges, a select group of Pharisees that were kind of chosen for this role. And their job was to kind of handle as much of the Jewish legal and religious law issues that they could to kind of keep Rome out of their business. So they kind of made a deal with the Romans and said, hey, if you give us a little bit of authority, we'll handle a lot of our Jewish stuff that you probably don't want to deal with, and we'll kind of keep the masses under control for you, okay? So the fact that Nicodemus has risen to this status um, as not only a Pharisee, but also a part of the Sanhedrin uh, meant that he had this higher level of power, of wealth, of influence, okay? So Nicodemus was an extremely well-known and important person in Jewish leadership. So let's look at verse 2. It says, he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So usually when I've heard these sermons done before, people can be kind of critical uh, about Nicodemus because he comes at night like he's scared of being seen with this itinerant 
journeying pastor, you know, that he didn't want his Pharisee friends to see him. And that might be true. But it also might just be that Jesus was really busy. <laughs> and if you wanted to just have a sit down, one-on-one -on -one personal conversation with him, you might have to kind of catch him at the end of the day. So either way, it doesn't really matter. To me, the fact that he comes at all is admirable, right? And to be honest, Jesus doesn't really care how or when we come. He just wants our full attention, and he's patient to, to wait and to meet us whenever we have the courage to come to him. And so Nicodemus comes at night, and he says, we know, like he's representing a larger group of Pharisees who probably kind of maybe sent him, you know, hey, when you go talk to Jesus, talk about this stuff, ask him these questions, right? He says, we know. And Jesus has undoubtedly been a topic of conversation amongst the religious elite, right? Because they're all there watching again. They're in town for the, for the Passover. They're seeing, oh man, the crowds are really growing. They're, people are really interested in this Jesus guy. And he addresses, addresses Jesus with respect. He calls him rabbi. And that's saying something because Jesus is just the son of a Jewish carpenter, right? Kind of a homeless wanderer. He even acknowledges that Jesus appears to have come from God. And it's just this whole conversation from, from Nicodemus, his, his posture is just so humble, which is really interesting, you know, that you have somebody who's kind of this really religious elite scholar who's also humble at the same time. You don't see very many examples of that often. And surely Jesus notices this. And it seems Nicodemus has come looking for insight. I think that there's probably a part of him that's kind of acknowledging, you know, our way of kind of carrying on this Jewish religion doesn't seem to be as compelling as the way that Jesus is living this out and portraying it. I'm imagining that Nicodemus is even looking at it just his own faith experience and saying, man, there's something that Jesus seems to be experiencing here, a connection with God and his faith that I'm not experiencing in my own, a, a power element, an attractiveness, an accessibility to the marginalized. People seem to be drawn to him. And even though he doesn't really ask a question, there seems to be a question kind of pregnant in the conversation, just kind of looming here. It's like Nicodem Nicodemus is saying, how are you doing all of this? What's your secret? What am I missing? And Jesus' answer in verse 3 is really quick and directly to the point. In fact, as, as I read it, I was kind of like, man, it seems kind of rude, actually. <laughs> but remember, he already knows the heart of men, so Jesus kind of cuts to the chase of where he knows this conversation needs to go. And so he basically says, hey, you want the secret, the secret is that you have to be born again. And immediately, Jesus turns the mirror right back to Nicodemus' heart. We talked last week about how we need to be keep the mirror focused on us, right? And so Jesus, in this moment, just turns the mirror right back around to Nicodemus. He had come to talk about Jesus, but God had a way to make it about him. You see, Jesus isn't on trial in this world. We are. 
He's saying no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And just by making that statement, he's attacking two really entrenched Jewish beliefs. The first is that the Jews believed that just because they were God's chosen people and they were descendants of Abraham, who was kind of the father of the Jewish nation, that they were just kind of in. They just got into heaven. It's like, you know, you're a card-carrying member. Just show your card at the pearly gates, you know, and, and you're, on, you're right on in. They think it's about credentials. But John the Baptist kind of shot that line of thinking out of the water pretty early on. Let me just read this for you. It's from Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So John the Baptist, right away, out of the gate, he says, no, nah, that's not going to work, <laughs> that line of thinking. Secondly, by saying that there's a need for a rebirth, Jesus is proclaiming this new path to salvation. In the Old Testament, it had all been about kind of this system of animal sacrifice, atoning for your sin, and that if you just followed these particular rituals that you were in right standing before God, to use one of... Jesus's analogies, you can't put this new wine, this new way of thinking that Jesus was bringing into the world into old wineskins, into old containers. Old wineskins were made of leather and they would crack and get hard. And Jesus says, you've got to have a new container because wine would expand and grow. You've got to have something, a way of thinking, a heart that's more pliable that can grow as you get more insight. Your old way of thinking is not going to work. In other words, he's telling Nicodemus, you can have me, but on my terms. Why is that winsome? For Jesus to say, you can have me, but on my terms. Why is that a winsome way of operating? If you're new here, this is where I ask you guys questions and you answer them. So, anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, Phil? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's going to, by, by, by saying, hey, here are the terms under which you can be in relationship with me, he's directing us to the right path instead of the wrong one, right? Which then saves us what? Saves us from what? Saves us from a lot of potential heartache and being on the wrong path, right? It's like I'm doing you a favor if there's like two roads and this one doesn't get to where you want to go and I tell you, this is the road you want to take, right? I'm saving you the heartache of the time you're wasting on a road that's not going to get you to the place that you think it's going to get you to. That is winsome. That's like, man, thank you, Jesus, for being honest with me, right? 
He's not just telling him what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear. What he needs to hear. You want to talk about disorienting. Can you imagine being Nicodemus? And you've done everything in your life the right way. Like you were the smart kid and, and the one who excelled and you disciplined yourself and you did everything. You jumped through all the hoops. You memorized just massive amounts of scripture. You've raised yourself in, in your level of authority and in integrity and, and you've been chosen for this special assignment to be a part of the Sanhedrin and, and you're old now and you've, you've banked your whole life on the fact that you're doing this thing that's gotten you close to God, that's gotten you God's favor. And then in one conversation, you meet this guy who says, now you need to enter this kingdom like a child. All of your titles and fancy robes and intellect and all that stuff, I don't really care about all that. Oh, man, can you imagine? He had come to Jesus wanting to be taught a new way but Jesus uses this imagery of new life. He, he came saying, hey, what am I missing? Give me some, you know, teach me some things. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> you got to start over. Not add to. His kingdom requires a new beginning. The theological term for that is regeneration. And this isn't something that we can do ourselves. Right, we can wash ourselves, clean ourselves. I can do that for me. I can't birth myself. That's something that only the Holy Spirit can do for us. And it levels the playing field for everyone. Get this. Whether you are an educated, brilliant, theological, religious leader... Or you're an uneducated, ostracized leper. We all have the same spiritual starting point of new birth. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Nobody's like a little further down the road and gets a head start. We all start at the same place. Born again. Ground zero learning a whole new language, a whole new way of thinking. Our old heart has been replaced with, the heart of stone has been replaced with the heart of flesh, and we begin again. And what follows, if you keep reading in John, is this longer conversation where you can just see that Nicodemus is just drowning, <laughs> trying to figure this out, right? He came just wanting to have this friendly banter with Jesus, kind of learn some more about what he's teaching, and in a moment... Jesus flips his whole life and his whole way of thinking upside down. And everything that he put his hopes in, Jesus says, no, that's, that's not it. And you can just see him just be like, what are you talking about? He's so confused. But this interaction is very different, a very different kind than one that Jesus usually has with Pharisees. Primarily because of the posture in which Nicodemus comes. A lot of times when you see conversations that Pharisees are having with Jesus, they're there to kind of condemn him, to tell him that he's not, he's not doing this thing right. 
or they're trying to trick him and catch him in his words so that they can take him and put him in jail or put him on trial and have him killed. But it's obvious that Nicodemus has come to Jesus really trying to understand what he's talking about. And I picture this conversation being quite civil. Let me ask you this question. What laid the groundwork for this kind of conversation to happen? How did Nicodemus know that Jesus was going to be approachable and agreeable to just sit down with him and talk? Yeah. Yeah, he'd seen, she said that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, right? He had seen the way Jesus was operating. He had seen the interactions that he was having with people and the healing that he was doing and, and the way that he carried himself, right? He was just a normal guy in terms of his appearance. He was accessible, loving, but he was also teaching with authority, his life that, that Nicodemus had watched was compelling and authentic and captivating and compassionate. And he drew people in. And so Nicodemus felt safe coming to him. And I hope you know that spiritually lost and confused people, which is most of the world, so most of the people that we rub shoulders with on a given day are watching us. They're watching us. Those who have been hurt by life and hurt by the church are watching. And they're asking themselves, can I trust this person or these people with my heart? Can I trust them? Can I trust them with my pain and my questions and my anger? Will they take the time to hear my story and not just judge my current choices? Because that takes a completely different level of engagement. What I see in a lot of Christian circles out there is what what Bob Goff calls in a lot of books that he writes is, is we just throw these, these theological truth bombs on people from a distance. We might be saying something true, but we just lob this bomb over in somebody in, a, in a kind of a condemning way and just watch it, you know, kind of explode and shrapnel go everywhere. But we, we kind of keep a safe distance from, from those folks. And it requires a completely different level of engagement to actually do life. To get to sit down with somebody and to hear their story before we just jump to the choices that they're making. What's gone on in their life? How did they get there? What were some maybe even Christian influence in their life that were just teaching them an, uh, an inaccurate view of God that led them to kind of some of their faulty thought patterns? Can, can we engage enough in people's lives to, to give them some benefit of the doubt of how they ended up where they ended up? 
Because I'll tell you this, folks. When we're being loved well, we have a much larger capacity to hear some truth. Have you noticed that in your life? When somebody's really loving you well, whether that's a friend or parent, a sibling or whatever, your capacity to hear truth from them, even truth that, man, it kind of stings and hurts, it, it grows, it expands. When you have this kind of stranger or an acquaintance who comes to you and wants to share some truth with you about your life, your capacity to hear what they have to say is like, right? It's like, dude, you don't know me. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. I love this quote that's been passing around a little bit. I don't know if I saw it on Twitter or whatever, but it says, like, every person that you, that you meet has something going on in their life that you don't know anything about. Every person that you meet has something going on in their life that you don't know anything about. Can you just be humble enough to admit that? Not you, we, <laughs> me too, right? Just like when people meet me, they don't know what it's like to be me. I was telling my wife last night, I'll just be honest with you guys and vulnerable. I was like, man, sometimes I really wish I didn't have a job where I had to stand up in front of hundreds of people and talk on a Sunday morning. This is not easy sometimes. And people have a lot of opinions about me and about pastors. And sometimes I want to say to them, hey, sit down. Pull up a chair. Let me tell you what it's like to be a pastor and to have to try to take, um, uh, the, you know, the most well-known, powerful book in the world and try to explain it to people in some logical way. It's not easy, man. I'm going to miss it sometimes. Can you cut us all some grace? And part of our challenge in this, too, is to discern who is in front of us and what their motives are. Nicodemus was a true seeker, someone who was open to Jesus' influence and was a person of peace. Other Pharisees were rightly called brood of vipers because they really weren't interested in anybody else's opinion but their own. They thought they already had the answers. And the Bible warns us to be careful not to cast the pearl of the gospel, this treasure, to swine. People who are just going to trample it under their feet. So does anybody have any practical advice on how to navigate that reality on a daily basis? How do we discern who is in front of us and what their motives are? With some practical advice there. Yeah. Okay. Come at somebody and tell them directly things without thinking about their feelings about what I'm going to say before I say it, then I don't care about them and I'm just trying to prove my point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we have discernment in those in those conversations? That's good. What should we do? Yeah, read. Okay, yeah, so one way is that we get to know people, right? 
We spend time with them to find out, is this person really open to what I might want to share with them? Am I open to what they might want to share with me? Huh, that's interesting. This goes both ways, right? Yeah, they might be wondering the same thing. Is this a person who wants to hear what I might have to say? So that takes time. What else? Yeah, yeah, pray, <laughs> ask the Holy Spirit, hey, is this a person that's open here? Should I share this? Is this somebody that you have for me? Instead of just assuming that everybody is somebody that God has for you. Yeah. Yeah. As far as really practical things, because the book of Proverbs says a lot about communication. Yeah, so practically going to the Word. She, she mentioned Proverbs, but just even like watching Jesus. How did he relate to people? What was his posture as he engaged folks? So immersing ourselves in Scripture. Yeah, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. So just being curious, right? Coming with maybe more questions than you have thoughts lined up. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's disarming, right, to come into a conversation that the other person is thinking, oh, man, this is going to be contentious. <laughs> and then you just ask them questions and just want to know, man, tell me about your experience. Tell me about your life. Tell me about how you arrived at some of the thoughts that you have. Yeah. Yeah, good. Just taking a deep breath, right? God, help me here. Give me some wisdom. Guys, one of the ways that we know that Jesus was winsome in this conversation, even though he had some really hard things to say, some hard truth to share with Nicodemus that was going to rock his world, <laughs> is that Nicodemus keeps popping back up in the story. And every time that we see his name mentioned again in the Gospel of John, it's a deeper level of commitment. I want you to turn to, to John chapter 7. It's the next time that we hear Nicodemus' name. In verse 45, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, this is John 7, 45, Why didn't you bring him in? Talking about Jesus. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. 
You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was the one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee, which is like the northern part of Israel, right? And so Nicodemus is kind of defending Jesus, saying, hey, we need to listen to what he has to say and give him a chance. Now flip over to John chapter 19. John 19, verse 38. This is right after the death of Jesus. 1938, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, just cut to the chase, that's a lot, okay? So it just shows his wealth for one. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So Nicodemus ends up being one of the guys that prepares Jesus' body for burial and then places him in his tomb. But it all started back in chapter 3 with a conversation filled with grace and truth. And I guarantee you that when Nicodemus walked out of that conversation that night, way back there in the beginning, if you were one of the disciples kind of watching that happen, you would not have bet money that Nicodemus was going to be the guy that was going to take care of Jesus' body at the end of his life. You probably would have thought, one of us is probably going to be doing that. Guys, love people with grace and truth like Jesus and then allow the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts in ways that we could never imagine what God's going to end up doing with folks who we just love well. That's our role as winsome followers of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you. Um, for just your ability to balance grace and truth. God, you don't shy away from the hard thing that needed to be said. In fact, you do Nicodemus a tremendous service in saying, hey, like, I know you think you've got it right, but actually you need to kind of almost forget everything that you've learned and start over like a little kid. And, and it turns the mirror back on Nicodemus' heart. And man, that is, that's such a painful truth. But it's so gracious and kind to us to not allow us continuing to go down this path. It's not going to get us what we think it's going to. Eternal life with him. Because his opinion of our life and the way that we live it is the only one that matters. So Jesus, thank you for modeling how we do that with people. And thank you for this story. I think it's so beautiful that that you continue this story with Nicodemus, that he keeps popping back up in ways that are just profound. 
then it makes me wonder, what was the rest of his story <laughs> that I'll get to find out one day? God, help us to be filled with grace and truth. Help us to confront whatever fears we have about leaning one way or the other that we're not used to so that we can be more like you. Help us to be people that are um, welcoming and approachable, people that surprise people with our compassion. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close?